I'm Russell Subiono. Oko Mako Hawaii This is our Hawaii. The podcast that looks at the legacy of large land ownership in the islands and what it means for communities' sense of belonging today. Today, we're following up on our last episode about how the entire island of Lanai came to be privately owned for the first time over 100 years ago. If you haven't checked it out, that conversation really lays out the groundwork for what we're going to explore today. It's in our feed and at hawaiipublicradio.org. Go check it out and meet us back here. I came away from that conversation interested in the lived experience of folks on Lanai. I feel like all the talks about Lanai have been about how it's factored into the fortunes of one man or series of men, individual landowners over more than a century. The focus hasn't been about the residents and their sense of place. The best way to close that gap? Go talk to some people and see for myself. Lanai is one of the smallest islands in the archipelago, with a population of just over 3,000 people. You can get there via prop plane, or you can take a ferry from Maui. My producer Savannah got us tickets on one of the first ferries over, which I was less than excited about. Boats aren't my thing. I took my Dramamine at the airport this morning, so I feel relatively confident. How often do you get seasick? Uh, always. After a thankfully smooth ride, the ferry docks at Manele Harbor on the south side of the island. Please have a seat at this time. Please remain seated until the boat is secured. Savannah and I both grew up on Hawaii Island, but neither of us had been to Lanai before. We disembarked with the other passengers, day trippers from Maui mostly, but also people returning to the island after medical appointments, shopping trips, or visiting family. From the harbor, it's about a 20-minute drive to Lanai City, where the majority of the island's residents live. That's where we were due to meet our tour guide, Lanai resident, and former HPR Community Advisory Board member, Robin Kay. We camp out at a table outside the Blue Ginger Cafe, a local spot off Dole Square. Savannah orders an absolutely massive egg salad sandwich, and I get to chatting with the cafe's owner. I'm, I'm Russell, this is Savannah, we're from Hawaii Public Radio. Russell and Savannah, nice to have you guys here. Thank you. My name is Phoenix, this is our family restaurant. You, you own the Blue A Jim? co-owner, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. We've had, we had a lot of people recommend for us to come here. And, and yeah, we're blessed, we've been here like 32 years now, so we're driven by all the our local clientele from this island as well as, you know, from other islands as well so we kind of always have seen ourselves as a as a local restaurant you know hey robin robin oh no i don't want to take up your time i'm sorry no take up your you should be talking to these guys we're actually here collecting stories talking to talking to people and he's such an interesting besides for being a a business owner his perspective on being a business owner in a community where mr ellison owns all of the business properties significant challenge for him if I may speak, that's a reasonable sentence about you. Yeah, hey, it's uh, great to be here. He's my landlord, you know, so <laughs> I, uh, I have a lot of good things to say about him. You know. He gives me an opportunity here, so. Mr. Ellison, Larry Ellison, is technically the landlord for most residents of Lanai. He's a tech entrepreneur who became a billionaire through his company, Oracle. And not to put too fine a point on it, but Ellison is mega wealthy. 
like mega wealthy. It's easy to say somebody's rich, but it's harder to comprehend what that actually means. Ellison keeps company with a select few. Those guys who have amassed more than $100 billion, we're talking Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Bill Gates. Back in 2012, Ellison bought about 98% of Lanai from another billionaire, David Murdoch, the now 100-year-old CEO of Castle & Cook. Ellison reportedly paid $300 million or so for the island. It's more than what some people have paid for control of Lanai. Looking at you, William Irwin. But still a drop in the bucket compared to Ellison's fortune. Ellison has enough money to buy 1,000 Lanai's, and then some. And he didn't just buy land. In one fell swoop, he also became the landlord for most of the businesses and many of the homes on the island. So that can make discussions about him somewhat tricky for folks like Phoenix. Um, I noticed that Phoenix seemed a little bit squeamish to discuss Larry Ellison. Are most people a, a little bit hesitant to discuss him? I can't comment about Phoenix, but I, I think, you know, in a way it's the way the plantation used to be when it was a pineapple plantation. In 1922, James Dole, head of the Hawaiian Pineapple Company, bought the island and set about transforming it into one of the largest pineapple plantations in the world. At the plantation's peak, there were 20,000 acres in production. That's about one-fifth of the island's total size. Fields and fields of pineapples filled Lanai, all laid out in rows. And at its center was the equally tidy Lanai city, constructed to house hundreds of workers, the majority of whom were Japanese and Filipino immigrants. The original plans for Lanai City were drawn up a hundred years ago. It was a neat grid design surrounding a town square. And much of that original footprint still exists today. In addition to housing, the city has stores, churches, a hospital clinic, even a movie theater. The town's amenities were not so much about convenience for the workers as it was a means of control. The company owned everything, so all the workers' capital flowed back to the bosses. Wages earned in the fields went right back to purchase goods at the company's store. And that control extended beyond just what employees spent their money on. It also determined where and how the workers lived. Homeownership in Lanai City was out of the question for workers, and the city itself was racially segregated. White employees were housed independently from other workers on Lanai City's upper slopes, while Asian and Native Hawaiian employees were grouped together, often in houses without running water or indoor bathrooms. Dole ultimately lost control of the Hawaiian Pineapple Company. Its Lanai holdings were sold off to Castle and Cook, one of the handful of sugar companies that dominated the political and economic landscape in Hawaii in the 20th century. When Castle & Cook faced bankruptcy in the 80s, billionaire David Murdoch acquired the company, and Lanai along with it. And when Murdoch reportedly ran into his own money problems during the Great Recession, he handed over the island to Larry Ellison and his management company, Pulama Lanai, in 2012. The company has become a catch-all term for residents in Lanai. Many who have grown up, had families, and built their lives under more than one of the island's owners. I get the sense that the term, the company, is more than the header on people's pay stubs or who they make their rent checks out to. It's about what the company represents. 
The company owns your house. The company provides your food in terms of they own the store. Um, your sister works for them. Your brother works with them. Your uncle works with them. So it's a company town. It's a plantation town. So it's challenging to criticize the person who's responsible for the economic welfare of your entire family. Robin Kay has no problem sharing his thoughts. I imagine it mainly has to do with his disposition, but he'll be the first to acknowledge it's also a point of privilege. Robin is part of the 2%, one of the few people besides Larry Ellison who owns property on Lenai. So, I mean, you know, like we own our own house and we're retired and I don't work for, for anybody, so I, I'm free to say anything I want. But if I, if I was a full-time employee of Pulama, I'd be reticent to speak out. Pulama, or Pulama Lanai, is Larry Ellison's management company. They employ the majority of the people on the island, and they also own about one-third of Lanai City's housing stock. Um, I've lived on and off Lanai since 1974. When you when you came, first came here, at, at what point did you buy your home? Was did you were here? Four, and I stayed in a. Castle Cook put me up in a uh, rented house, small house. <clears throat> we then rented the house we're in, and we bought it in '78. Okay. Was it was it something that was always an opportunity? Was the to buy the house, was it always available? Or did you have to go through like a special process to be able to buy it? It's a short but funny story. Um, it was owned by a, a doctor. Uh, we rented it from the doctor and we liked it very much and so we had an outstanding offer to buy it at any time. Because it was challenging back then in the plantation days to buy homes because most of the homes were rentals. This was one of the few private homes. Every 10 years or so, the then company would make homes available for sale, so there was some opportunity. Anyway, so in 74, we asked uh, um, the owner of that house if we could buy it. He said no, no, no. And then, um, coincidentally, when we came back from the hospital with my son on his birth, we got a message that he said, all right, I'm ready to sell. Um, I checked you out with the Filipino community and they said it's okay, so I'll sell you the house. <laughs> Is that because your neighbors are primarily Filipino? Yeah, it was, when, when, when I got here, my project was to document the, the island. So I put signs up around town and said, you know, anybody wants free photographs of their wedding, their, their funeral, their luau, whatever, just call me. And nobody did. I was a strange howly coming into this, you know, local community. So I set up my camera. I had a 4x5. So I set up my camera with the hood over my head in front of Richards and took pictures of people. Then I developed them right away in a darkroom I built and gave them back to them. And so people began to realize I wasn't doing this to make any money. I never charged anybody because I had a grant to do it. And they loved the photographs. And so I started getting invited to uh, parties and things. And I got to meet a lot of people. And just so there you are. It was cool. It was a really cool beginning. Outside of Lanai, Robin Kay is probably best known for organizing grassroots opposition against a highly unpopular wind farm that Lanai's previous owner, billionaire David Murdoch, wanted to build on the island. The windmills would have covered almost a quarter of the island's land, and all the resulting power would have gone to Oahu. We were the spokespeople against the windmills. And I'd have people come up to me at the post office and look all around to see who was watching, give me $100 and say, we hate the windmills, but we can't speak out about it. Because he owned his own home and wasn't employed by the company, Robin felt insulated against Murdoch, allowing him to speak his mind. And owning property has continued to pay off as limited stock inflates the price of homes on the island. 
you know, houses now, my house, it, it, it's ridiculous how much it's valued at for, by the county. It's just not worth that much money. But because you live on a small island and there's so few homes. And you, you talked a little bit earlier about how, because Allison doesn't own your property, because you own your property, that you're a lot more free to, to speak, to kind of speak your mind and not have to worry about you know, it affecting whether or not you have a job or your family has a job. You know, intimidation is a, is a funny thing. I, I don't know of anybody who's ever been fired because they spoke out against Ellison. So, it, it, I, in no way am I accusing Pumama of any kind of intimidation. It's the, it's the fear that if you speak out, you might be in trouble. And there's no proof that that's ever happened. But nonetheless, in plantation communities, that's the, that's the, the way it works. And do you think that mindset predates Ellison? Oh, absolutely. No question. It was even worse under Murdoch. So where does that leave residents? Is there any counterweight to the landowner's power on the island? I think maybe the outside world might look at us and be like, ooh, plantation town, they, they're going to pay you in script. That's Gabe Johnson, Maui County Council member representing Lanai. We met up with him in his district office, a renovated plantation bungalow just off the town square. It's got high ceilings and new fixtures in the kitchen, and our voices echo off the walls. Sitting here, don't you kind of feel like we're in trouble? A little bit. Feels like the principal's office. Okay, sorry about that. No um, so how, how would you guys like to do Gabe Johnson is one of those people whose boundless energy makes him seem kind of ageless. During our conversation, he races from topic to topic, stringing together stories like an auctioneer. He has a lot of ideas for how he wants to make Lanai better for the people who live there. When he feels strongly about something, he tends to hit his hands on the table, as though to really drive the point home. I can write one little bill at a time and have these small little increments, but when I fought for affordable housing, I didn't just try to write a bill or two. I tried to change the whole system. And you got to be tenacious if you want that to happen because it's a big, messy system. That tenacity has always kept him moving forward through career changes, through layoffs, and even through two unsuccessful runs for county council. It wasn't until 2018 that he got elected to office. I ran three times in a row, and I won on my third run. So sometimes the fish gets away. Yeah. <laughs> but you yeah. can fish tomorrow, right? <laughs> but all that energy can only get Gabe so far in his position. In addition to the normal roadblocks of bureaucracy that every elected official faces, Gabe has a unique challenge. His entire district is basically private property. What does the county own on the land, right? We own a wastewater treatment plant, a couple roads, and some services. What can a, a person do on this island when they want to recycle? Well, we don't have a recycling program here, right? Which I would love to work to, and I think there is talk of uh, the Maui County Administration working with Palama on a, on a recycling program. But a lot of this has to come in from the company side. One thing the county does own is 115 acres of land on the west side of Lanai City. This plot is Gabe's island within an island, his chance to leave his mark and create something for the community. He's pulling for a new affordable housing project. He hopes it gives more residents the chance to own their own home, especially Kupuna, our vulnerable older residents. It turns out the number one group of people that are housing insecure is our Kupuna. They make the least amount of money, and they don't work for the company to qualify for company housing. The county has tried to develop the land for affordable housing before, 
but scrapped the idea after the barriers to construction were deemed too high. So the government wants to do shovel-ready projects, but Lanai, we're so rural, we don't even have that shovel. Gabe says that just getting materials to Lanai is a huge obstacle to getting county infrastructure projects built on the island. So you have to double your money on any kind of infrastructure. The projects cost a lot of money. You have to ship over everything. You're in competition with uh, uh, the other company that's doing all their construction. So they take up a lot of space on the barge. The other company in this case is Pulamalana'i. Since Larry Ellison bought the island 11 years ago, he's undertaken renovations at a nonstop clip. Some of that work benefits the community. So it was around 2008 when Mr. Murdoch, our poor billionaire, was saying, we gotta shut down your pool, we gotta you know, shut down your, your uh, movie theater, and that really rubbed the community the wrong way. Then when Ellison bought it, the first thing he did was renovate the movie theater and, and open up the pool again. And that brought a lot of social capital. You know, the conversation always started, thank you for opening our pool. (laughs) Thank you for opening our pool. The construction wasn't entirely community focused. A lot of work went into renovating the island's two Four Seasons resorts and building more luxury housing down by the bay. And those projects brought workers, AKA more people who needed housing, putting more strain on the island's severely limited housing stock. To address the shortage, Pulamalana'i announced that it would build a new affordable housing project called Hokuau. It would be the island's first in decades. Although desperately needed, the project came under some fire when Pulama announced that the units would only be available to rent, not for sale. The affordable housing project that the company is developing, we understand that at one point, there was going to be an opportunity to own those homes, but now they are per- purely rentals. Is that correct? That's correct. They did a public uh, meeting, you know, and that's what they told the public. Then they went into my committee, and that's not what they told us. They said it's going to be rental. So at that time, I, I, I consider my community's voice very important. And when, they can, when the community came to speak on this, they were all for Hokuau. They were upset that it was rental, or that it was rental only and not for sale. But we're so starved of homes that we'll take the rentals. And then it became this thing of the county should should build the for sales. And I am for that. I totally agree with that. I, we need houses for sale, and I am pushing to make the affordable housing project on the Lanai Maui County's land to be a, a reality, but that doesn't change the fact that that those units of Hokoa also could be for sale. Did they explain why they made that shift? I, uh, I, I, don't, I can't speak for them. I don't know. Yeah. Because Hokuau is privately funded, Pulama Lanai isn't required to disclose the cost of the project. But those kinds of costs are all Gabe thinks about when it comes to developing affordable housing on county land. There's definitely the old way of building affordable housing and a newer, more progressive way where you start leveraging all of your funds. I can get five grand from the affordable housing fund on a county level. I can go to the state and ask them to match that. Now all of a sudden I have 10 grand. You go to the feds and you say I have 10 grand, they can give you 20 grand if they'll match it. But what does 20 grand matter really when compared to the fortunes of Larry Ellison? 
How do you feel the way that that Larry Ellison manages his 98%? Is he a good neighbor? Is he helping to to bring the community along? Does he contribute to the community? Well, like anybody, he could do more. I mean, I could do more. We all could do more, right? Uh, when you're the fifth richest man in the world, uh, I would hope that you would do more for the community. We've got somebody who could, could solve world hunger if they wanted to. So, Do you feel like the company is your partner when you are envisioning and planning for the future of Lanai? I would hope so. But uh, I would hope so. That's all, uh, that's all I can say on that. I think this idea of a savior complex still lingers on from the time of of Western contact. I definitely could see it in Mr. Murdoch and I see it in some ways in Mr. Ellison as well. That's Anella Evans. She was born just about as close to Lanai as you can get. Many mothers on Lanai have to travel to hospitals on Maui or Oahu in order to give birth. Lanai doesn't have facilities. But for Anella, Lanai will always be home, even spending almost 10 years away. She moved back shortly after Larry Ellison bought the island. I uh, decided that I wanted to move home to Lanai. Um, This was shortly after my dad passed away. And I felt that, you know, I needed to be at home on Lanai to be close to him. He's nerved that the island's only uh, employee of uh, the telephone company for approximately 40 years. He worked very hard and and he was uh, very well known on the island. Everybody called him the telephone man. (laughs) Um, So anyway, uh, I moved home uh, in 2015, I believe, and I received a position to work for um, the landowner uh, Mr. Ellison, his his land management company, Pulamanana'i, in their cultural, culture and historic preservation division. So I was very blessed to be able to do that work. What were some of the things that stood out to you that were that were significantly different in between the the time when you were growing up and the time when you had moved back home? Um, I think one of the most noticeable changes. Um, was the shift in demographics of the population. The majority of the population when I was growing up um, was uh, primarily Filipino because um, there were families of, you know, workers who came to Lanai during the plantation era. Um, When I went home in 2015, uh, I started to see more... um, an influx of Caucasian, um, Caucasians and, and affluent residents who moved to Lanai from the continental United States. Anella is pretty polite about the impact of newcomers. Robin Kay, less so. We, we have seen too many examples of, of luxury homeowners and wealthy people come in here who like the place, but either they want to change it to what they think it should be, even though they came here because they liked the way it was, yeah. or are so f-ing dumb about cultural connections that they just don't get it. And if your skin is brown, you exist in a different role to them. 
The transition from Dole era pineapple plantation to a luxury destination for the wealthy under Murdoch and now Ellison feels like a major shift in local memory on Lanai. But luxury tourism had its finger on the island before the pineapple industry first took root. In the early 20th century, real estate tycoons were hailing Lanai as the perfect spot in paradise for a colony of millionaires to set up shop. They praised the island's tropical climate, its panoramic views, and most of all, its seclusion. Because there's nothing a rich person seems to like less than neighbors, unless there are other rich people. In 1920, the Honolulu Advertiser published an article that states that if not for World War I, and I'm quoting here, Lanai might have become the playground for America's millionaires. That idea seems to have some staying power. 100 years later, Lanai has no big chain stores, no stoplights, no public transportation, but it does have two different five-star Asian fusion restaurants run by celebrity chef Nobu Matsuhisa. In fact, those articles from 100 years ago sound a lot like an editorial published just this month on Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle brand magazine, Goop. Get thee to this private paradise, says the article, encouraging people to book trips to Lanai. Why it uses thee is beyond me. And its descriptions of Lanai range from a modest jewel box island next to the dramatic geography of its big name neighbors to the God's playground. But residents have their own ways of describing what makes Lanai special. One of the traditions in this community is if you you pass somebody and you're both in cars and you have something to say, you can just stop on the street, right, and just talk. I mean, you're not going to stay there for a half hour, but you're going to just have a conversation. No one's going to toot their horn, but newcomers may. And it's that's a small thing. It's really manini, but it's it's a significant component of what makes this place so special. What's your rush? Where are you going? After the break... There's a reason why they say you can never go home again. We'll be right back. Hey, if this show resonates with you, we have an opportunity for you to be part of one of our episodes. We'll be hosting a live recording of our season finale on Saturday, August 12th at Hawaii Public Radio's Atherton Studio in Honolulu. We'll have guests in the studio, including a representative from Kamehameha Schools, to talk about the future of land management in Hawaii. And they'll be taking your questions. You can join us in person or via Zoom. Admission is free, but spots are limited. We'll have food and drinks and all that good stuff, so come hungry and bring your burning questions. You can meet me and all the other cool folks who worked on the show, and we'll even have exclusive This Is Our Hawaii merch available for those who attend. So save your spot. You can find more info on how to attend at hawaiipublicradio.org slash Our Hawaii. See you then. I'm Russell Subiono. You're listening to This Is Our Hawaii. As we're talking to Lanai residents about what they hope for for the future of their community, all the while I'm thinking... What does Uncle Larry think about all this anyway? Short answer, we don't know. I know some people who are really upset 
despite all the goodness that, that Ellison has done to and for this community, he's never spoken to the community. He never had a public meeting or a forum where people could talk story with him. Like it's just not his style, I suppose. And there are some people who are really, really upset by that. They're offended. Is that progress undermined in your eyes at all by the fact that the community doesn't necessarily have a say in it? That's a great, really good question. There's a lot of conversation about how much say do we have in what happens here. Um, and there really is very little in terms of the land ownership. <clears throat> um, you know, they're talking about making this, this was a bowling alley. And now they've, the, <clears throat> and the county owned it, sold it to Palamal and I. And Palamal and I has said that they were going to make that into a bowling alley again more modern, obviously they'll fix it up. I think it's a terrible idea. But does anybody ask me? No. But so what? I mean, am I going to organize like we did with the windmills? No. Um, there was a, f you know, the company has a monthly Zoom forum where they talk about these projects. Um, I mean, I suppose you could argue about it there, but, you know, did anybody ask us about redoing the theater? No. Do people love the theater? Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful theater. It's really a, an important contributor to the community. It's a good social place. Um, it, it's a challenge. And we tried to speak with Larry Ellison and with the leadership of his company, Pulama Lanai, which describes itself on its website as a land resource management company, a cultural steward, a community builder. Emails and phone calls were exchanged, but after a month of requests, we got the answer many had told us to expect, a decline to comment. Which wasn't that surprising. Pulamalana'i isn't known for granting interviews. And even though I expected to be turned down, it still disappointed me. When you already run the whole island, what do you have to lose? On this island, it's very hard to feel like your voice is being heard. And that doesn't mean it's an Ellison thing. It's just the way the system, the systemic problem that we have of just having this under one purchasable island. I'm, uh, I don't know Mr. Ellison's age, but is he going to live to be 100? Is our future, you know, do we have a 30-year plan? You know, that's, that's the concern that all of us have. The past looms large on Lanai, but even folks who were born and raised here have trouble picturing their future. Anella says most of the kids she grew up with left Lanai a long time ago in search of a different kind of life. I think a lot of the mentality that, that is residual today is that of the those that came to Lanai um, to work on the plantation, right, and to seek the American dream, um, or the quote-unquote American dream, I should say, you know. A lot of the population that is present on Lanai today are... Of Filipino descendants and their ancestors came to the island um, because it was a chance to um, make a better life for themselves and their families in quote-unquote America. In my lifetime at least and continuing on to today, success is defined as making your own American dream and Unfortunately, for a lot of the families there, you know, that residual mindset is still present in that there's not a lot of opportunity on Lanai for growth and for making a path for yourself. Their perception of success is moving away from Lanai and finding a career path elsewhere. 
Um, so, you know, not a lot of my classmates that I went to elementary and middle school are still on the island. Gabe says that's still true for young people today. My daughter's uh, graduating class of 30. I'd say maybe two stayed. You know, this point feels so, so familiar to me, having grown up in Hawaii. I had that expectation for myself, like what Anella was talking about, that if I was going to be successful, it wasn't going to be here. I don't think anyone actually ever told me that. I think I just knew. Yeah, but on the other hand, even if you want to stay here, some people just don't see how it's possible. And that's what Gabe is saying. I think I understand that mentality, you know, that small town mentality, the dream that they sold the people that lived in the small town, that you have to go someplace else to achieve something in life. But you know, at this stage in my life, I just want to go home. And so that was part of what made being in Lanai so surreal. It feels in some way like a part of Hawaii that doesn't exist anymore. A part of Hawaii I don't know how to get back to. I tried to explain how I was feeling to Robin when we were there. I grew up in Waimea on the Big Island, and, and Lanai now reminds me of Waimea when I was growing up in the 80s. And I have a lot of, I've been having a lot of flashbacks to when I was a kid and just how quiet the town is and just seeing people interact, you know, very friendly. Everybody knows everybody. You know, that, that, that was very familiar to me as a kid and I kind of miss that. You know. I see a lot of new faces here. I don't know that they're trying to get involved in the community as we did. Often my wife and son and I, but because my wife was going to law school, she didn't have as much time. So my son and I would come back. And so he kept his friendships. And he was, at that time, he was the only young, he was the only two-year-old Howley with curly red hair. And so everybody knows, they called him Red. His name is Grant, but everybody called him Red. So, I mean, it was color of your shirt. It was an amazing hair. My point is that he is, even though he's not here all the time, he is a part of this community. And when he got married here, the person who married him was a, was a judge who lives here and made a point of telling everybody that um, we suggested that the kids just elope and not have it, so we don't have to do a big deal over here. And he said, no, Grant, my son, wanted to get married in this community with his friends and family and all of his aunties and all of his uncles. Because back then, it was such a small town that you really did know everybody. It, it, I, don't, I don't know. My mayor was probably the same. You, you belong to that place and you care for it. I don't know if that happens with the newcomers here. I just don't know. I feel like Robin is walking a fine line here in some ways. I mean, he was once a newcomer, right? And so was Gabe. Gabe moved to Lanai just a couple of decades ago. I came off the boat. I just uh, got laid off from Kapalua Bay Hotel, which is in uh, West Maui. And I was coming here for a job interview. And they picked me up and they drove me up city and everybody waved and there was no stoplights. I was a single father. I wanted to raise my daughter in a, a real safe, comfortable place where you can walk to school, where you know your classmates. I really kind of felt like a and a peace and kind of like a humility and said this is this is where it's at for me yeah we use newcomer malahini transplant negatively sometimes i definitely do it me too but i think that has less to do with the individual 
like the literal person who has moved from some other place to here and more to do with the values that they bring with them, whether they feel like they belong to this place or it belongs to them. I think that's what Robin is bristling at when he talks about newcomers. In my opinion, to live in a place like this, you need to, to, to become what makes it special, not have it changed to your way of life. In general, it seems like the residents of Lanai are trying to strike a delicate balance. They want things to stay the same, the slow, sleepy feeling of plantation living, that ease between neighbors, the familiarity of home. We don't want it to change so much. We want that slow cultural plantation life that we have here. And we don't want a stoplight. We don't want to double our population. You know, those are very, like, not hard lines in the sand, but those are the things that would change us that we wouldn't be who we, who we have been. That's really how a lot of people feel about home, right? Can't it just stay exactly the way we remember it forever? But things change. They just do. There is no way around that. And sometimes it's for the better, right? People on Lunda, you get that too. They're hoping for it. They want real, tangible things. Better housing, higher wages, opportunity for their kids. Gabe wants people to break out of that plantation mindset, to speak up, and to push back when it matters. People on Lanai, just like any other community, want to have a say. They just want to have a say. How, I want to have a say on how my community's grown, right? I want to have a say on an intersection or a road or infrastructure or, or the hotel or jobs. We all want to have a say on that, you know? And I, I want people to understand that, that we're not, uh, you know, the system is, is what it is, but we definitely will fight for our rights too. Residents of Lanai know what home means to them. And sure, Larry Ellison might not be taking calls right now, but I bet he's listening. Oko mako Hawaii keia. This is our Hawaii. Next week, we hear from Molokai residents on how to cultivate abundance on the land. And hey, if you like our show, you can join us for the live taping of our season finale next month. Details at hawaiipublicradio.org slash our Hawaii. Mahalo to everyone who talks story with us and everyone tuning in. I'm Russell Subiono. This episode was written and produced by me and Savannah Harriman Pote. Casey Harlow helped to create our show. This is Our Hawaii is produced with support from PRX and is made possible in part by a grant from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, original music courtesy of Lelehua Lanzalotti, and additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Kristen Lippman designed our sweet logo. Fact-checking for this episode was done by Taylor Nahulukea Okalani Kozloff. Good chance you found out about our episode in the first place, thanks to the work of Krista Rados, Sophia McCullough, Emily Tom, Sylvia Flores, and Liberty Peralta. Anandev Banerjee makes magic out of a sound cue. Jason Ubai can pull a rabbit out of a hat just when you think it'd be really nice to have a rabbit right now. When one door closes, Bill Dorman opens a window. Jose Fajardo is the ringleader that empowers us to take this journey. And special thanks to our friend Ari Dada, who gets all our best ideas for safekeeping. 
you're the best. <laughs>